Amen. You guys may be seated. Yes, that is the voice of God and me echoing through, I promise. Someone smarter than me is going to figure that echo out in a minute, though. Well, good morning. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful that you've joined us this morning and uh, you're continuing to worship with us. Uh, I do want to make a note that this is typically where we would give of our tithes and offerings uh, during our service. And Well, I say typically, and uh, at this point, we might as well just say this is where we're used to. Um, at some point, we may get to do that again during this time. But uh, during this time, uh, I just want to remind you of what God's doing through your tithes and offerings. Uh, you are allowing God to do ministry through Holmes Avenue. Uh, that These things don't just come in to pay bills and pay paychecks because, frankly, I couldn't care less if I get a paycheck. But I do care if God's name is being glorified through the things we're doing. And the money that you give lets us do that. And so I pray that you continue to feel led to give, and you can give in person as you're exiting with one of our deacons or online at homesavenue.com forward slash give. Uh, today we're going to be continuing our study in Leviticus, and we're going to be in Leviticus chapter 5, uh, verses 14 through chapter 6, verse 7. And so uh, as we have been doing during this time, uh, we're covering some larger chunks of Scripture, so we're not standing and reading God's Word together uh, all at once as we have been. Uh, certainly we still hold that to a high regard. But in this, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, this idea of the perpendicular grace of God. Now, as you've heard that title, you might be a little bit curious about what we're covering today. Um, for those of you that perhaps aren't up to date on math terms, uh, perpendicular describes two lines that meet together at a 90 degree angle. Uh, so in layman's terms, that would look something like a T or like a cross, uh, two lines that are meeting at a 90 degree angle. Now, this is important not because there's a math test today, because I assure you, um, I got through college algebra by the skin of my teeth, and I will not be giving that test to you. But this is important because I think there are implications of this perpendicular grace that God has given us. You see, as we are looking through the book of Leviticus, we are seeing God being concerned about the holiness of His people. We're seeing God laboring to address how His people should live and act. That if indeed we serve a holy God, we are to be holy people. And as we begin to study this idea and wrestle with this, this leads us to an understanding of the gospel. That as we look at what the gospel is, the gospel is a message of reconciliation between us and God. It is that we are broken, condemned sinners who have lived imperfect lives, who are worthy of condemnation. But God, in His goodness and grace sent His Son Jesus to walk this earth, live a perfect life, to go to the cross an innocent man, to bear the weight of our sins upon the cross, and die and be resurrected three days later. And it's that resurrection that shows He has power over life and death. It shows He has power to take us from death into life. And so as we begin to wrestle with what is God's holiness actually saying to us, there's some implications that God telling us as His people to be holy means we have to be in proper relationship with Him. That is, we need to be, have a proper vertical relationship. We need to have a relationship with Him that is built on forgiveness, on grace, and that we have done our part in seeking that forgiveness that there's no barriers between us and the Lord. That also implies that we have a horizontal relationship as well with our fellow believers. That is that God has reconciled you and I to himself, that we are a part of his family. And because of that, we have been reconciled with our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And that means there are certain ways we treat each other, we act towards one another. There are ways that we display that horizontal relationship to one another. And if we truly understand the gospel and what it means to be holy, we must understand first and foremost, that means that God is concerned about our relationship with Him and with others. And so today as we study these verses, we're going to see what God is trying to explain to us. That He is concerned about our relationship with Him and with others. And so if you're taking notes, your first point that you want to put down is going to be that God is concerned about our relationship with Him. That is, that vertical relationship. Look with me at verse 14. Verse 14 reads, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. So as we begin right here in verses 14 through 15, we've got to get some landing zones here. We've got to understand what's happening. You see, God is beginning to address the reality here that we have a tendency to be disloyal to Him, right? That we have a tendency to do things that are in error against Him. And He's making a way for us. That's why we get to verse 16 here where He lays out restoration for us. In verse 16 he says, He shall also make restitution for what has been done amiss in the holy thing, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and he shall be forgiven. You see, God recognizes that we have a tendency to be disloyal to him, to run away from this relationship with him. And so he's addressing this vertical relationship we have with him, this relationship with God our Father. And as he starts his verse 15, he's addressing it to everyone, to anyone. He says specifically, if anyone commits a breach of faith. So he's talking about everyone from Moses on down to the newest member of this covenant community, anyone and everyone. He's talking to all of Israel, his people. Now, that qualifier is still applicable because he's still talking to all of his people, the church. So that as you and I redeemed believers in Christ Jesus, you and I are being spoken to right now. Now, before we get any further here, we've got to address what the guilt offering is, right? We, we've seen this, and we've seen multiple offerings during the time we've been in Leviticus, and this is the last of the five sacrifices we see here in the sacrificial system. It's very similar to the sin offering uh, because it deals with some specific sins that we've committed. Now, the key difference in here, why is it different, is the text is going to show us it's a matter of the heart. You see, this offering is reflective of the posture of our heart. The sin offering is done when we have intentionally, specifically, chose to ignore and run away from God's commandments. We've chose to do the things that He has told us not to do. That's what a sin offering is there for. We have said in active rebellion to God, I am in control of my life, let me be in charge, and I'll do what I want. You see, the guilt offering, though, this is in place for times where we have unintentionally run across God's law, where we have done things where we haven't been pursuing this, but it came out. It happened. And as we look at this, you'll see why God made this allowance for us. But the, the true nature of this offering is this reflective of the posture of our hearts. 
That are, are we searching ourselves to see if we've fallen short of the glory? Are we striving to live by the standards that God has set for us? Or are we choosing to take control of our own lives? Are we choosing to move forward and tell God, I've got this, I don't need you, let me live my life as I please? Now, verse 15 also doesn't really specify a specific sin here, right? It's very vague on purpose, just pointing to a fact that something's been done unintentionally that's out of line with God's expectations. Now, this word unintentionally, it's a big word, uh, not just in number of letters, but in context and meaning here. Now, if you've got kids, you've heard this uh, excuse be used uh, many times uh, that I didn't mean to do it. Uh, for my kids, for Perry and Molly, uh, they have so many times where they will tell you, I didn't do it, I didn't mean to. You know, for instance, uh, the other day, Molly starts crying in the living room, and so as I come around the corner and I say, what's going on? And Perry says, Molly fell over. And I said, well, did you have anything to do with that? And Perry says, well, I pushed her. It wasn't an unintentional thing there. His excuse right after that was to say, I didn't mean to. You mean you just had a muscle spasm to knock her over? No, it was an intentional action on his behalf. He chose to do that. That's not what God's talking about here. God is addressing that this is an unintentional action by us. You see, Numbers 15, we're not going to turn to it, but it gives us some context. As we see in Numbers 15, what God is making allowance for is the reality that there are thousands of laws He's laying out in the Old Testament. Thousands of laws. And He's recognizing that God's people are imperfect, and there is the reality that we will stumble across one of these laws and break it without being aware of it. You see, the specific thing that he's focused on is not the, the, the specific sin, but it's the attitude of the offender. Are you doing this in open rebellion? Or are you trying to live your life in a way that honors God, but you've made mistakes? You see, this, it's about the posture of the person who is coming forward for this offering. Now, he also references this, this idea of holy things in here. And these, this tells us that the sin, this, these unintentional sins are in relation to God. Maybe they did something that was forbidden to them or, or they failed to do something that was expected in the temple. God's very vague on the specifics as he's giving Moses some commands. But what he is doing is he's calling his people to a higher standard. He's also given us guidelines on how to pursue reconciliation here in verse 16. We're commanded to bring an offering of a ram, and we're being brought forth to provide an extra offering to clear our debts before the Lord. So as we look at these verses, we're addressing what the guilt offering is, right? We're, we're hearing some, some phrases, some words. We know what we're doing here in terms of here's what the guilt offering is for. Now, how are we as Christians in this day and age who are not going to make a guilt offering before the Lord to embrace this, right? What do we do with this idea of this guilt offering? Well, the truth is, as we look at this, God is addressing his people's covenant relationship with him. You see, he's addressing our covenant relationship with him. What, what does covenant mean? Well, this is an agreement between two parties to labor together, to be united Oftentimes, as we look at Scripture, we see that God is concerned ultimately about our faithfulness to Him. That rightfully so, He's concerned about our faithfulness to Him. 
Now, I use this word covenant, and it wasn't just a slip of the tongue. It wasn't just an, a, a pleasant word. It was a purposeful word, one that fits precisely what God is trying to address to us. You see, God's covenant within scriptures is often compared to a marriage covenant. You know, maybe you've seen this throughout the scriptures, uh, particularly in Old and New Testament. In the Old Testament, we have verses like Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. And this reads, I will betroth you to me, to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. We see it in the New Testament too, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of his wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. You see, God is making this connection of his covenant being similar to a marriage covenant on purpose. You see, God is calling us to a purity in our relationship with him that we would offer our spouse. Let me give that to you again. God is calling us to a purity in our relationship with Him that we would offer our spouse. As I thought about this, I wrestled with what does that mean, what does that look like, and what I came to the conclusion of is that in our offering of, of vows before one another on the wedding day, what are we saying? Are we saying that I'm going to be faithful to you just 99% of the way? 99% of the time, I will be faithful to you. I vow this on this day. As a pastor, I'm ending the wedding right there because we're not signing those documents. You ain't getting married if what you're saying is only 99% of the time, I'm willing to be faithful to you. No, what you're saying on the wedding day is I vow until the day I die to be yours and yours alone. I vow, I affirm before the Lord, before a pastor, before those that have gathered before us, with us to see this day. I vow to you that I will be yours forever and yours only. And if death shall separate us, then I will wait for you eagerly on the other side. That is the type of covenant relationship that we're promising on the marriage day. And that is the same covenant relationship that God is promising to us. Yet we know that we struggle with this same faithfulness. As God is calling us to be faithful in his covenant with him, he recognizes that in, in his sovereignty that we're going to fail. That just like the wife in Hosea, there's grace to be found. To give context, we're not going to go look at the entire book of Hosea. But as you study the book of Hosea, there's this wife that Hosea, is to, that Hosea is to have this relationship with. That God tells him, go marry this prostitute and be faithful to her. And they get married and she runs off continually, 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 is never faithful. And by the end of the story, as you're reading Hosea, you're thinking, what's the point of this? And God is, going, is stepping in and in this he says, that unfaithfulness is a picture of the faithfulness that Israel has shown me. My covenant people are prostitutes who give their love and affection to anyone and everyone that they can please. Anyone and everyone that would offer them something. When what they should do is be faithful to me for all of their lives.
And yet in that, he continually comes back and returns and offers grace and forgiveness. You see, God is addressing this idea of the guilt offering because he is concerned about our relationship with him. We use this word covenant and we don't use it lightly because this is a vow. This is something we promise, we assent to for the rest of our lives. Yet, if we were to examine our hearts and minds from this last week, many of us would find that we've only been 99% faithful to the Lord God Almighty. Maybe your percentage is a little bit lower. We're not here to do math, as I said earlier. But what we are here is to do is to examine our hearts and minds and to wrestle with this truth of if God is 100% faithful to me, why can I not be 100% faithful to Him? We're to address and examine our guilt because I would submit to you that each and every one of us has a guilt offering to present to the Lord today. That we have fallen short of the standard He has submitted and that you and I must go forward in repentance and humility before the Lord. Now God is not finished with addressing the guilt offering and, and what this means for our covenant relationship with Him. He continues in verses 17 through 19. Read with me. If anyone sins, doing any of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, though he did not know it, then realizes his guilt, he shall bear his iniquity. He shall bring to the priest a ram without blemish out of the flock, or its equivalent for a guilt offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the mistake that he made unintentionally, and he shall be forgiven. It is as a guilt offering he has indeed incurred guilt before the Lord. So in these verses, we see that God is continuing to give some guidance on the guilt offering. And as we see the word commandments, we're immediately reminded of the sin offering earlier in Leviticus. And again, the, the difference between the guilt offering and the sin offering is one of heart. Not of semantics, but of the heart. God is addressing the further unintentional sins of His people. And so as we look at this idea of unintentional, because it's come up multiple times, what's happening here? How do you break God's commandments unintentionally, right? Well, here's the reality of it, is that you and I do this every day with civil laws, so is it a stretch that we would do it here with God? And you might be asking, civil laws, what are we doing? Uh, quick show of hands, raise your hand if you drove the exact speed limit every road you were on before you came here. One hand. Y'all some guilty people. How about this? Raise your hand if you've never jaywalked and illegally crossed the street. Exactly. Raise your hand if you've ever done a rolling stop at a stop sign or stoplight. Exactly. Here's the truth. We flaunt civil laws every day. We say it's only going to be five more miles over the speed limit or three or whatever you say. I can cross the street here. There are no cars coming here. Who cares? Of course I don't have to stop here. I've seen that there's no one coming. I'm paying attention. I'm just going to go on through. The reality is that we continually flaunt these many laws we have. Of course it's not a stretch to think that we would do that with God and His laws. 
You see, throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we see there are thousands of laws. In fact, rabbis had to memorize the law of the Old Testament. That's hundreds and hundreds of pages they are memorizing of the scriptures. Is it truly a stretch to think that people who are desperately trying to love the Lord with all they have might miss one or two on occasion? Is it even a stretch to think that we don't know as much as we think and we would be ignorant of some of these laws? You see, even that reality that we're going to make mistakes, that we're going to unintentionally fall short and not keep every measure of the law, even that reality of of that is the point of the law. You see, the point of the law is that we would recognize our sinful nature and our inability to be perfect and holy. You see, it may sound contradictory, but the law was sent so that we may realize our inability to make any headway towards God because of our own sinfulness. If you examine the the truth of our lives and were to ask the question, have we kept every ounce of God's law perfectly, even from the day we became a believer to now? The answer is no. And in light of the scriptures we see here, the reality is that we desperately need someone to be a mediator between us, a sinful, broken people, and God, a holy king. You see, this is where Jesus comes in. And he comes in to break down the dividing wall between repentant humans and God. God is in every way concerned with our vertical relationship with him. You see, as we look at these verses, 14 through 19, we see that he's ensured that there's no barrier between his people. That he has made every avenue for you and I to come before them. In fact, as we look at all the offerings that God has laid out, these five major offerings that have been laid out in the sacrificial system, they cover the gauntlet of human experience. No matter where you are at, whether you're in sin intentionally or unintentionally, whether you're choosing to provide praise and worship over peace, whether you're trying to provide any other type of offering, there is an offering that covers where you are at at that moment. You see, we look back at these sacrificial offerings and we think that's just something for factual information. That's just something to read through, to get through in our reading plan. But here's the truth of what is being displayed. God recognizes that He has a broken, imperfect people worshiping Him. And He has made sure that there is not a single barrier that it can be in place between you and I. That He is a God who loves us so much that He would ensure there is no way we would have to stay separated from Him unless we choose to stay separated from Him. What a great love that God has loved us with. That there is nothing that could separate us from Him except our own sinful hearts. Because as we look here in the midst of these offerings, what is it that's required from us? What is required from us? To simply come to the altar. To simply come forward with a humble, repentant heart. And to be willing to lay it all down before the Lord. All that's required of humans in the sacrificial system is to come forward and give of themselves. 
And God is the one who is making restitution and atonement for us. He is the one who is cleansing our sin and purifying us. And even here on this side of the New Testament, as we look at what does that mean for us as Christians today, the process is still the same. You and I come forward and all we have to put on the altar is ourselves, humbly, repentantly broken. And God still provides a sacrifice that lays upon the altar and that sacrifice was Jesus Christ. And that altar was not in the shape of a table, but in the shape of a cross. And it was sprinkled with His blood from His piercings and His hands and His feet and on His side. And yes, the sacrificial system is in place, but it was made and finished. We were atoned for by the shed blood of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And all that is necessary for you and I to have this vertical relationship with God, to be reconciled with Him, is to come forward and lay our lives upon the altar and receive the free gift of grace that Jesus has provided for us. You see, as we look at the Old Testament sacrificial system, it's easy to be overwhelmed and discouraged as you look at those things. But when I read this, I read this and see that there's hope that God will stop at nothing to call His people His own. And today I want to offer perhaps a word of encouragement for you that no matter where you are at, no matter what sin has entrapped you, no matter what distress you are in, no matter what your situation is, God will stop at nothing to pursue you. God will stop at nothing to have you be His adopted child. And all that is necessary for you and I to do is to humbly, gently, repentantly lay our lives down at the foot of the cross. And there we receive atonement and redemption and are reconciled with God our Father. Now God is concerned about our relationship with Him, right? He wants us to be reconciled to Him. But in that process of being reconciled together with Him, that leads us into the reality that we now are reconciled with others. And our second point that you're going to want to write down is that God is concerned about our relationship with others. That's that horizontal aspect. Look with me at verses, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, If anyone sins and commits a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving his neighbors in a matter of deposit or security, or through robbery, or if he has oppressed his neighbor, or has found something lost and lied about it, swearing falsely, in any of all the things that people do and sin thereby, we'll stop right there. We're going to pick that back up in a moment. God is transitioning his conversation with Moses to addressing this horizontal aspect of gospel reconciliation. Since we've been made right with God, we are now also made right with those who love God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 tells us that for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see, what that verse means is that God Himself is our peace. Jesus Christ has paid the debt of reconciliation before us and the Lord. 
And for those who have also been reconciled to God, he has broken down this dividing wall of hostility. That is, the things that separate us no longer matter because there is one thing that unites us, and that is Christ Jesus. You see, this means that we display a full measure of grace, kindness, and love towards our fellow saints. In fact, this is so important that Jesus himself states this in John 13, 35. He says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I want to put an emphasis on if you have love for one another. Because let's address just a basic reality of human experience, right? We're not perfect. We're going to make mistakes. And sometimes we are quite unloving and unkind to one another, if we're being honest. Sometimes we struggle to love one another. Yet, Jesus himself would say the world is going to know who my people are. That is, those who have been reconciled to me by the way they love their fellows, brothers, and sisters in Christ. It's a very big, bold statement we would see there, right? It's a strong statement that we would see. We would recognize that there is forgiveness to be found, that we are to love one another, and that is an apologetic. That is, the world sees that and goes, wow, they love one another in a way that is unlike anyone else. What is it that God has done in their midst? We see that God specifically calls out some some sins here, some actions we can take against one another. He says things like deceiving, oppressing, lying. Now we have to remember for context, all of Israel is a part of this covenant community because the the people of Israel, they are a part of this family. And so all their neighbors are a part of this covenant, right? And all of these things in terms of deceiving, oppressing, lying, these reflect our desire to be like God. You see, in each of these examples... It's one person trying to exercise power and authority over another. I'm deceiving you so that I can have what is yours. I'm oppressing you so that I can have what is yours. I'm lying so that I can have what is yours. Maybe you get the picture. You see, we're trying to be like God, exercising power like God, but we're using it for our own glory. You see, it's this root desire for power that brings us into conflict with one another. And you might say that, I don't desire power. I don't like that word, right? Like, I don't want to be, have power or authority over people. That might be true, but what I do know is that you want to get your way. Is you want to have your way. You know, the phrase, you want to have your cake and eat it too. You want to get your way. You know, kids are a great illustration of sermons um, because they do a lot of really ridiculous stuff. And until they get of a certain age where they can protest against it, I get to use them as illustrations. And if you've met Molly, you know she is a basket full of illustrations. Molly's three, and she's a, a little bit of a mess sometimes. But Molly at three knows precisely what she wants even if it doesn't make sense to you. And when you tell Molly to do something, and when you say, you need to do this, and she doesn't want to, 
the first thing out of her mouth is no. And when you say, Molly, go do it. No. Molly, you're going to get a spanking. I don't care. No. And this gradually works up into a full-fledged temper tantrum, and I'm not going to try to emulate her scream, but of her squealing and screaming and crying, no, 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 don't want to, not going to do it, it's not going to happen. Now, I know that it's a bit silly, but here's the reality. Molly is three years old, and she knows what she wants. She knows what her desires are. And she will fight you if you try to exercise power over her and take away what her little sinful heart desires. Got quiet because I think that rings rather close to home for us, doesn't it? None of us want power until what we want is threatened. And then we're going to do everything we can to keep what we want. You see, this chase for power, this chase for authority is nothing new to humanity. You see, the Bible opens with us trying to take it from God. That's what the Garden of Eden is about. Where we come forward and God has given us everything and anything we could possibly want. And what do we desire? The one thing that has been put off limits for us. The thing that would make us like God. Yet it also ends with us willingly laying down all power and authority before God in the book of Revelation. Where in the new heaven and new earth, we willingly, all of creation kneels down and bows down before God on His throne. Because in that moment we've recognized this chase of power and authority is meaningless and in vain. Because the only one who has true power and authority is God Himself. This desire for power is rooted within us. And God is deeply concerned about this because it's ultimately reflective of how we view one another. You see, He's addressing the covenant people, the people of Israel, those that are reconciled to Him, those who are in His image. And it brings the question to us, is that if we will treat those who are adopted brothers and sisters poorly, how much worse will we treat our adopted father? It takes us to a second question. If we'll treat those that we have been co-adopted with, our brothers and sisters, this way, how much worse will we treat those who aren't even a part of the family? You see, God is deeply concerned about that horizontal relationship we have with others who have been reconciled to Him because this is a reflection of what He has done in our life. And if you and I, who are united by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, cannot love one another tenderly and with affection, how can we love a lost and dying world? In fact, when a lost and dying world looks in upon a church that has conflict, that has disunity, that has a lack of love for one another, what they see is that God is not worthy of their honor and affection because those people who claim they love Him can't even give him the honor and affection he's due. You see, God is deeply concerned about our horizontal relationship with others because that is what the world sees about our relationship with him. And if they look upon a church that is broken, 
It is lacking love. They look upon a covenant people that cannot live in covenant relationship with one another. Then what hope does the gospel bring to them? What hope does the gospel bring to them in their lives? Now God, in His wisdom and kindness, isn't a moron. He recognizes that we're a broken, sinful people and that we will fail to implement these very measures He's put before us. Right? He recognizes that we're going to get things wrong, that you and I will not love each other perfectly, that we will sin against each other, we will chase power and authority over one another than rather than submitting to God. And in verses 4 through 7, he tells us how we're to be reconciled back, not only to one another within the family, but also to God himself. Look at verse 4. If he has sinned and has realized his guilt and will restore what he took by robbery or what he got by oppression or the deposit that was committed to him or the lost thing that he found or anything about which he has sworn falsely, He shall restore it in full and shall add a fifth to it and give it to him to whom it belongs on the day that he realizes his guilt. And he shall bring to the priest as his compensation to the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flock or its equivalent for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord and he shall be forgiven for any of the things that one may do and thereby become guilty." You see, God, knowing that He has reconciled His people together, also recognizes that we are not perfect yet. If any of you were waiting to drop an amen, that's the time to do it. All you have to do is look at your spouse and they'll tell you, yeah, you're not perfect. The truth is that, yes, we are new creations in Christ, but we are not yet perfect. We are still sinners. Perfection will only come when we ascend into heaven to rest at the feet of God. But until then, we have to live with the reality that we do not have it all together. In light of truth, we have to recognize that we will sin against one another again. That we will sin against one another again. And God is addressing these actions, these attitudes right here, to ensure that when this occurs, we have a path forward for restoration to the covenant community. We have a path forward to be reconciled with God and with those who are within the family of God when we sin. This is what leads us to verse 4, where when the person who has violated realizes their guilt, they have to make it right and provide restitution. We see that God calls us to not only make it right, to bring what is lost or stolen, what has been dishonestly earned, whatever it is, not only do we bring that back to compensate the victim, but we also provide an extra 20% on top of that for restitution. And then we have to go forward and make an offering before the Lord to receive reconciliation with Him. That language day that he realizes, it requires a prompt response for us once we know that we've sinned against someone. That takes us to just this idea of Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. You see, I'll flip over there. This was unintentional, but we're going to get there anyway. 
Matthew chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 and 24 read, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there on the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. You see, God takes that horizontal relationship so seriously that Jesus himself literally tells us if you realize you have sinned against a fellow believer, a fellow brother or sister, and you're here to make your offering, you drop that because until you fix this, your offering's meaningless. You go, you make it right with them, and then you come to seek reconciliation with the Lord. You see... God is quite concerned about our relationship towards one another. Our sin before Him, our sin with one another, is going to cause issues in our relationship with Him. We cannot offer proper worship towards God if we're unrepentant of sin against someone. Our worship will only provide a pleasing aroma before Him when we've purified ourselves before coming to Him. You see, this isn't adding something to the gospel or anything. This is simply us taking God at His word. We must confess our sins, all of them, against one another and against God Himself before we can offer worship that is pleasing to Him. It's why we spoke at length about this last week during the Lord's Supper. that We do not want to take the things of our relationship with God lightly. You see, God has created a way and a pattern for us when we fall into sin. If you study the entire Old Testament, what you see is that God makes a way for His people, and they praise Him, and then they fall into sin again. And He makes a way for His people, and they praise Him, and they fall into sin again. It's just this ever-moving cycle. And God truly wants to address these issues of sin within our lives. And this process begins for us when we've sinned. That we must confess that we've sinned. We must recognize that. But this really began further back than that because God is the one who defines sin. He is the one who set the standard of holiness and perfection and said anything that is against that is sin. You see, we've all fallen short of the standard of sin. We have sinned. That if you and I have lived in a way that brings offense to God's law and His standards, then we're guilty of sin, regardless of intent. You see, as we've looked at the sin offering and the guilt offering, what is recognized is that both are sins and require forgiveness. You see, our sin, the sin that you and I bring to the table, requires atonement. This word atonement... This means payment for our debt. Yet you and I, as we look at our sin and what we have to offer, realize that we cannot provide payment for this debt. Ask yourself this question, what can we truly offer as people that will be worthy of covering the full measure of our sins before holy God? Nothing. You see, there is nothing that you and I can bring to the table that is of worth of any value in terms of forgiveness. There's nothing that you and I can do that would meet the debt that we owe. 
That we are here eagerly awaiting for someone, anyone, to pay for our debt. Yet God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. You see, what we see there is that it's indeed a miracle that God would love us, that we are in the midst of active rebellion against Him, living our lives to please us and us alone. But God, in the midst of our sinful condition, willingly chose to inject Himself into our story. Willingly chose to say that the life you are living is not good enough because there is life abundant in me. You see, it's a miracle that God would love us, but it's a greater miracle that He would send His Son Jesus to pay for the debt of our sin and shame. You see, today, as He does every day, God is offering this miracle to you and I that we might find forgiveness through the atoning work of Christ. And as I've said today, we all have sinned that we need to confess today. Each and every one of us is recognizing, has to recognize, if you've been listening, that we've fallen short of the standard of the glory of God. That you and I have sinned against the holy God, and that requires repentance and atonement. Repentance is what we bring to the table. It is confessing our sin against one another, against God, to the Lord God Almighty, and saying, God, this is what I have done. I am not worthy of your grace and mercy, but I need forgiveness. We lay those things down at the foot of the cross. And what God offers is atonement. That is, my child... You are forgiven because you are mine. Your sins are wiped away and you are mine forever. You see, it is the same miracle, the same grace that God offers us each and every day. Yet perhaps today, each of us are aware of the reality that we desperately need this grace, this atonement that God can provide. And so here in the next few minutes, we have opportunity to confess these things before the Lord. I'll lead us in a time of corporate prayer where we'll confess our sins to God. That silently, together, we will cry out to the Lord and confess our shortcomings to Him. And we will ask for that atoning work of Christ to be poured out upon us, for forgiveness to be offered to us for these sins. And perhaps for some of you, this will be the very first time that you've ever asked for that forgiveness. And today is the day that you would cross from death into life. For others of us, we're veterans, if you will, of this experience. Because we recognize our inadequacy, our shortcomings, and our failings in this life. After we have this time of prayer, I'll close us with a few words and Our band's going to lead us in a time of worship. We're going to be singing, Lord, I need you. And frankly, I can't think of a better song, a better hymn, if you will, to cry out in the midst of reading of our need of atonement and the reconciliation that God has provided. 
than to cry out together with the adopted family that God has placed us in. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. So if you would, would you bow your heads and pray for a few moments, just you and the Lord, silently. Father, we are guilty. We are guilty of sin and shame. We have fallen short of the standard of perfection that you have set, of holiness. And for everyone who is hearing my voice today, the truth is that we would honestly, earnestly acknowledge that, Lord. We've made mistakes, whether intentional or unintentional. We've strayed away from the path that you've set before us. We have sinned, Lord. And what I pray that every man and woman here is offering is that they are offering their repentance to you, Father. They're confessing their sin to you. That they're being specific and acknowledging moments of shortcomings, of weakness, of failure of times where they've not lived to glorify you when they haven't offered you the worship that you're worthy. And Father, as you've heard these cries of, of repentance, what I have confidence of is that you are willing and able to answer with atonement, with forgiveness. You see, the Scriptures tell us that there is one prayer that you will always answer, and that is a prayer of forgiveness and salvation. Of crying out to you and repenting of our sins, you will always answer with atonement and forgiveness. So Lord, may you continue to fulfill that promise today. Will you shower us with your grace and mercy? Will you offer atonement to us so that we may be reconciled with you. And through our confession of sin, our repentance, may we be reconciled with those who are in our family. Lord, I pray that you move in our hearts and minds, and if there are places of sin, strongholds of deceit within our lives that we have not given to you, would you break down those walls? Would you humble us today May we willingly give you all power and authority so that you may have your will and way in our lives. Father, be with us over the next few minutes as we sing and worship you, celebrating the grace you've shown us and our desperate need for you every day. Lord, we're thankful for you. We're most importantly thankful for the finished work of 
Jesus Christ on the cross. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.